Hi everyone, welcome to Off The Clock, Tomkins Wake's podcast series. And we're looking at building resilient businesses in tough economic times. So today we're talking about how do we build an effective board and senior management team. So joining me today, I have Henri Elliott, who is the founder and managing director of Board Dynamics, and Sherry Lee Atkinson. She's an expert in corporate governance. Sherry Lee also sits on three boards. So welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. So we're going to launch right into it. Henri, I think the first question on most people's minds is going to be, what's board dynamics? So the board dynamics, if you think about the EQ of directors and the personalities, the most effective boards from my experience are collegiate, but you want the right level of creative tension to challenge each other. The least effective boards are where there's groupthink and everyone agrees on everything. The most dysfunctional boards are where they can never agree on anything. So having the right balance is critical. And that's why we talk about board dynamics. So finding boards that can get on with each other but aren't afraid to challenge each other. Very much so. And a mixture of skill sets, which is around board composition, which is an element of board dynamics. So you think of EQ and IQ, so the technical skills, the industry experience, as well as their personality. Because in life we have introverts, extroverts, even ambiverts, which is a mixture of both, or people who pretend to be an extrovert when they're really an introvert. So if we want the most effective company and the most effective board, we need to look at the makeup of the board and the skill set and the personalities and how they work together. Is that what you're saying? 100%. So the way to do that effectively is to do a skills matrix, which is basically looking at the skills the board needs to deliver on their strategy and not the one-year strategy, the long-term strategy. And it varies from organization to organization. In some cases, it's three to five years. Sometimes it's a master plan that goes on you know, up to 50 years. What's critical is that the directors who are partaking in that process are honest in where their experience lies. So if you were an accountant 20 years ago but haven't practiced accountancy in 20 years, that's not a skill set that you're experiencing anymore. It has to be current and valid and tested out by the others around the table. And normally when you look at a skills matrix, you look at all the skills you require, everything from risk to strategy, audit through to industry experience as a few examples. You have on the other side of the column, the left side, the individuals. And everyone selects three that they're very strong on and competent according to their peers and themselves. They challenge each other. And then that helps identify where the gaps are in any recruitment process as part of succession planning or potentially adding another director to the board. Overall around that, it's the personality dynamics are critical. You know, mm-hmm. honesty, integrity is mm-hmm. great. But more importantly, are they active listeners? Mm. Are they succinct in their responses and so mm. on and so forth? Yeah, because when we look at skills, we go, what are you know some professional skills like oh, that person has accounting experience, that person has legal skills that they can bring to the board. They've already been a CEO of a major organisation. So what would form part of a typical skills matrix for you that's not including those personal attributes? Good question. Typically, you'd see across the top row of the skills broken down to about eight to ten maximum. If it gets longer than that, it gets to almost to a micro level. And you also have to separate some skills and experience that you can buy in mm. as an advisor for a specific project and area to advise the board temporarily. Also noting that if you have skills that you no longer require, challenge that and remove them as a skill the board no longer needs as well. Yeah. I recently did one for a, a prior to an interview that I was uh, 
before I went to an interview to be appointed to a board and had a look at some online ones. So personally, when I go to apply for a board position or I've been shoulder tapped, I'll actually look at, well, what are my strengths here? Well, what can I actually bring so that when the questions come to me, I can be honest and sincere with a board to say, these are the things that I can bring currently. I'm working on these other areas, but and other times the board is actually prepared to accept the weaknesses because they want to work with somebody to build up those areas. But what they're looking for ideally is, you know, I can actually bring to them and, and be honest, I've already gone through that process. It might be that the board have gone through a skills matrix internally. I would say a board performance review annually is really ideal just to make sure that we're staying on top of those dynamics within the board and understanding our, our own selves for ourselves, what it is that we're bringing to the table. So those can be very useful. And this skills matrix test had five in particular, which was like financial skills and understanding strategy, your adaptive thinking, which is all areas that you don't go to university to typically learn. So they're intangible skills. The one that I found interesting was strategy. So as a young up and coming board member, strategy is really, really difficult to get right. And so when you're looking at board dynamics, that's an area that you actually have to learn on the job almost. Would you say that? Oh, very much so. So I grew up in strategy. So my, my career took me around the world in strategy, whether it's large global consulting firms, as well as head of strategy for two major banks. I was lucky, but I've noticed involved in appointing a lot of directors, establishing boards and reviewing board performance. It's a mixed bag out there and people grasping what strategy is. A lot of people can't help themselves, but they get very operational. They want to get into the weeds, but also they don't recognize that strategy has changed today from 20 years ago, where typically you learn strategy and a lot of it was around you know business models. But actually, especially in the tech space, business has changed within months, 12 months, 18 months, and you have to adapt very quickly as a director thinking strategically as your strategy is almost a living document. The last point to note around that as well is some directors suit more being on the board of a private company where 80% of the time is strategy, 20% compliance. Mm -hmm. Listed company is slightly different depending on on the scale of that listed company. And then when you're involved in not-for-profits, there's elements of being a working board member, whether you're a trustee or a director. And the last thing to note is early-stage startups when they look at board members, they actually think of them as working board members because mm-hmm. they don't have the funds to have as many employees as you normally would have. But it's a very valid point where you mentioned around strategy being pretty hard to learn on the job. Mm. And it takes time and, and years of mm. thinking that way and, and holding yourself back, trying to get involved in running the company, mm. which is not your role as a director. And I think one of the important things, if you're trying to take a, an overview of the board, is looking at how the needs of the board do change over time and that the director who might be right for the company now or who was right 10 years ago might not be the right director in five years' time and about not constantly refreshing but making sure that you set time down to reassess the needs of the board on a regular basis. I completely agree. Term limits is one technique. The challenge with a term limit is if you haven't thought through succession planning, you might suddenly lose too many board members at the same time. So it should be spread out over several years. People often ask me, how long should one stay on a board? Well, as long as you feel fresh and you're adding value and you're not viewing the board meeting as challenging and difficult and can't be bothered and you're actually skimming the board papers and you know it's time to retire and you want to be at that stage prior to that moment. And I think typically the range goes anywhere from six years up to 10 years maximum. And you rarely see people extend beyond that unless they're potentially the owner 
and they want to stay on longer, and that could be a challenge in itself. And lastly, I'd note, succession planning is one key area that boards don't do well. They think they do, but they actually don't. And they actually don't do what Shirley said earlier around maintaining a skills matrix annually, reviewing the board's performance annually, are key elements to understand you know, what change is required around the board composition as a result. So when you talk about people staying fresh in terms of, you know, feeling challenged by being on the board, do you think that having a more diverse board helps because each person is bringing unique skills there? I think diversity is about diversity of thought. And I think what's critical anywhere in the world is to encourage and as a result attract and retain a larger pool of directors from diverse backgrounds, whether it's diversity from ethnicity age, gender, and experience. And attracting directors not typically from the traditional accounting, legal, or CEO suite. There's a lot of experienced people who are very, very good around strategy or marketing that's appropriate as a potential director around the boardroom table or even HR from a leadership perspective. And you think about organizations today looking at being more purpose-driven in their business model and how they actually go to market and how customers feel about their organization it's critical to ensure that we have that right diversity from all those quadrants and not get stuck in the typical diversity of one quadrant, which could be a mistake because you end up having someone appointed because of their ticking one box, Mm. but they don't have the right skill or experience to be successful. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I quite like what you said. It's diversity of thought as opposed to, you know, diversity of gender, ethnicity. That wasn't your immediate go-to. It was diversity of thought because that's the benefit there is having each of these representations, you know, whether it reflects the community or the client base or the purpose behind the business, having that diversity is, is what drives the conversation, it's what drives the strategy, it's what challenges the thinking in that board level um, to be able to engage in these conversations that are sometimes tough. But if you don't have that representation at that board level, then you can't raise these issues and it doesn't even necessarily mean that, for example, you wouldn't know this, but I'm I'm Māori, and so <laughs> it wouldn't necessarily mean that you have to have somebody who is Māori represented on a board, but rather somebody who is there prepared to raise the issues of concern. Of course, having that representation is just a whole other board game, but ultimately, for the time being, the diversity of thought is a really good track to go down in terms of you know bringing that that board level for the time being. And I'll take what you say further in respect to creating that pool of diverse directors. Mm-hmm. I think one biggest issue we face is that a lot of people are going through various board training in New Zealand, but it doesn't actually mean that they actually end up on a board mm-hmm. or a board of note, i.e. a large corporate or a large organization, even a listed company potentially in some cases. But we need to attract the next generation of directors. And you know, when I wrote my book, and it's on a plug, but it sounds like one, in 17 board shorts and the next version coming out this year, the next wave, is I really care about having people who are passionate about being in the boardroom for the right reasons. And it's not about the prestige or even the remuneration because actually you take on a lot of risks as a director, but more importantly, you're passionate about the organization, you care about their purpose, and you want to add value as a director around the table. And we need to encourage the next generation younger in the sense of it's not a retirement gig, mm. but actually joining a board you know, in your late 30s, 40s as appropriate mm. onwards, but not thinking, okay, I finished my career now, I'll have some board roles and I'll keep myself busy. Yeah. That's usually actually quite a big mistake. Yeah, I've definitely seen a trend of change. Um, when I first started in law, one of the comments said to me about my boss at the time, it, with all good meaning and intention behind it, was you're young, you're Māori and you're female. You basically fit the category of minority and those are challenges against you. 
And this was, you know, 10 years ago coming to now where everybody's recognising the need for representation of minority. And it's wonderful. It's great. At the same time, there's a, a huge weight of responsibility on me to ensure that when I go to the, you know, the board level, it isn't just a tick box exercise. I'll take that tick box. If I'm a tick box, I will take it because here's an opportunity for me. But it's being also of the, the generation that I am that I think as millennials, we do have a way of speaking up and addressing issues that we're very confident to do, whereas in the older generations, uh, it's a different way of thinking. So I'm grateful for the fact that this is now being recognised as a need and in order to stay resilient, in order to plan for your succession, to have these stronger boards and businesses that can see you through tough times. You're right. One thing I'd add really briefly here is that it takes the courage of a chair to push that change in a boardroom. Mm. I remember when I was... In my late 20s, I got asked to join a board in Toronto, in Canada. And I remember I showed up to the meeting and I just didn't pay attention. I was reading something else. I was doing my day job during the board meeting and I had to represent the organization I was in a senior role for at a young age, is that the chair pulled me aside three months later and said, you're going to come meet me at my country club. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not showing up to a country club. But I showed up, not dressed appropriately, borrowed a jacket and tie, and I was summons and I had to listen to him lecture me for a few hours but I recognized at the end he actually cared in his awkward way actually that if you're going to be in the room add value otherwise don't show up Mm. but the average age in that board was 68 years old Mm. so you can imagine how I felt so Mm. I was intimidated but also I had a day job Mm. long story short he taught me the biggest lesson of all is that to add value have the courage to speak up speak succinctly but also recognize that this is what we are right now, but things will change over time. Mm. And I chatted to him a year ago. I bumped into him when I was overseas, lucky enough to go overseas, and we chatted for an hour. He said to me, I remember you, because he pulled me aside, he saw me walking down the street. And he said to me, oh, I remember you. You were the young gun who didn't want to pay attention, but I converted you to governance. And I read about you the other day, and you really love it now. I said, yes. So the moral story is passion. So if you're passionate about something, you will be involved and active in care. And if you don't have that passion, don't show up. Don't accept the board role. What is Winston Churchill's quote? Is that um, courage is being able to stand up and say something and also having the courage to say nothing at all. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I do find passion is one key element. It's also understanding that our role as governors, and I've got to be careful because governing and stewardship can often be the same thing, but have, yeah, some people will interpret it differently. But my value coming into these roles is purely that I am stewarding something on behalf of others. So when I look behind me, I think, who am I representing here? And it is the minorities that I'm representing. But I also bring skills to the table, which a lot of it is, you know, legal skills and a boardroom are very much in demand. So I use both to my advantage. So if I'm getting in the door based on whatever reason, then at least I'm using all of those things and that's my focus as well as learning what other areas I can use. But they've, they've brought me on for a specific reason. It's understanding that. I think we as new governors and trustees and board members and directors, we come on, we're very shy. It's the confidence thing. We want to do this, but oh, we've got other people in the room who have been here longer and know what they're doing. But they've come to you and you've been appointed to the board for a purpose. So it's just recognising that those two, got, you know, it goes hand in hand and they want to hear your voice. They want to have you say something. The best thing I have found is 
having a good chairperson is vital, especially for these people that are coming on board, the new ones, my generation, to then be able to allow these discussions to happen, to be able to go across to each board member and ask them for their voice, their opinion and their thoughts. You know, that's really important to me when I'm choosing now what board I'm going on is who is running the show, who's the chairperson, because if we don't have that right, it can actually make a difference. You're right. I didn't mention earlier, but I, I chair a number of boards in New Zealand in, in primary industry as well as engineering and export focus. And as a chair, even though I'm a chatty person, I speak about 5 to 10% of the time in the whole board meeting. My role is to facilitate yeah. and come to a conclusion or decision or yes. defer and get the right information yeah. to make an informed decision in the future. And lastly, it's important to your point, is drawing out the quieter people, mm. whether they're quiet because they're new or their personality or it's a topic they don't know a lot about and they're still learning and helping them on the journey. And so one thing that we found helpful is pairing a new director with an experienced director who will mentor them, but not mentor them in a traditional sense, but catch up with them for a coffee, mm. not have a board meeting outside the main meeting, but allow them the opportunity to ask them how they feel they're performing, what they could do differently, what help they may need, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Have you had experience around that? or? Yeah, the chairperson, yeah, usually will touch base with, with me, go for coffee. Most of the conversation is usually like, how are you going? <laughs> Right. I was like, how are the kids? I like this coffee. It's great. Yeah. Let's go back to this cafe. And again. I think that builds so, you know, that creates a really good relationship with your chairperson and you just feel, and opening up those doorways, creating that sense of vulnerability means that you can go into a board meeting with a lot more confidence. You feel more confident to say something. Generally, ideas are not shut down and that's another skill of, you know, adaptively thinking or, or looking at hearing a member's thoughts and being able to disagree agreeably. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I think there's an element of being a mediator, facilitator, mm. sounding board. And also we don't often talk about the chair CEO dynamics. Mm-hmm. I think it's critical the chair's role working with the CEO, but they're not barbecue buddies. They don't spend the weekend together playing golf or eating or fishing or whatever. They're there as their alter ego sounding board as well as someone who's entrusted by the full board as a chair to monitor but be supportive. Nothing worse than being a board that doesn't support your CEO. Mm. I remember asking an experienced director in New Zealand about 15 years ago, what are the two things that she thinks about before she enters the boardroom? And guess what they were? The first one is, do I have faith in the CEO? If I don't, what do I need to do differently to ensure that we are comfortable with the CEO? And do I believe in our business model? Do we have the right business model? I think top of mind for a lot of board members is thinking through that. And so what do you think the best way is of ensuring that there's that comfortable working relationship between the board and the CEO and the senior management? You know, what's what's the recipe for success here to make sure that they're working well together? Yeah, so there's, there's no perfect recipe. All of us will look at a recipe and, and the food will end up slightly different, you know, and I think it's fit for purpose. So depending on the type of organization, board, composition, the industry you play in and the like, but let's say we look at a typical commercial board. First of all, the appointment of that CEO is critical as the appointment of the chair is critical. You often don't want to appoint them both at the same time. Uh, in what order? It really depends. And typically, CEO through a refresh or recycle first and the chair, not both at the same time. But what I would note is the right dynamic around that is honesty, get to know each other, have those coffees. We just talk about different things and all, not always about work. Get to know the person, understand without pushing the boundaries, you know, what, makes them tick and why they do what they do. 
identify what gaps they have and support them on that journey to fix them or improve them or get the right people within their team to be effective. There's no perfect leader. So knowing what they do well and what they don't do well will help them in their decision-making as a CEO. And as a chair, you're the alter ego sounding board. And an effective chair has had experience as a leader to relate to it. A chair who's never been a CEO or a senior leader will find it hard to actually have a good dynamic with a CEO. You also want to avoid a chair who wants to be the CEO. Being clear, know what your roles and responsibilities mm. are and what the boundaries are. And if you cross over, it becomes an issue. You know, I remember an experience years ago when one of the boards I'm on, the owner and chef of a major restaurant kept on asking me that they wanted one of the products that we have in the marketplace with his brand on it and a specific thing around them being vague for obvious reasons. I remember raising it in the board meeting just in director only time. And the CEO goes, well, that's my role. And he's been trying to hound me. So obviously he's started to go after the chair. You need to stay out of that. I said, no, I definitely agree. So that's a small example of you stay out of the weeds, but your role isn't to run the company. Your mm-hmm. role is there on behalf of the board, first among equals from the old British parliamentary tradition is that you ensure there's one voice outside the boardroom, but you're entrusted with working closely with the CEO and making sure they are successful and where they have issues or challenges, you help them on that journey and you work with the board and you ensure the board is fully aware of that as well. And that's how I look at things at a very high level. I don't mean to turn it back to legal aids, but you'd almost understand the fundamental principle, which is directors have the ultimate responsibility, yet we can delegate some of those powers to a CEO, a manager, And it's understanding that we've delegated those powers. You know, we've done that for a reason. And to understand what, you know, delegating means and some people can't let go go of it. And again, it's, you know, for CEOs, I've, you know, having the confidence to go, well, I've, I've got that power, therefore I'll make these decisions. Understanding when to go to the board or the chairperson for to have that feedback, but otherwise they've been given the power to do these things. It's a very good point you raise around the future responsibility of directors. Yeah. But what's interesting is, is I've seen a lot over the years in reviewing private company boards where often siblings don't actually have a clear delegated authority model in mm-hmm. place. Everything from the terms of reference through to actually being clear on what amount limits there are for various decisions to be made. And that's often causes a lot of turmoil in the boardroom. So I think a lot of family-owned or privately held companies are still working through that mm-hmm. where it's a lot more structured typically in a listed company it has to be as well um, for regulatory reasons legal reasons etc but what I find interesting is is that if you ask a lot of directors around the table in privately held companies around the delegated authority of a CEO a lot of them are often unclear yeah and there's room for improvement there as well do you think that part of that comes from when you sort of built a company up that you don't always realize how big the company's got and in your head perhaps the company is still you in one shop or one small business, but actually now it's multi-million dollar and you need to take that step back and evaluate, you know, what are the needs of the business and what are the needs of the board to make the business effective? Definitely. That's one one clear element. I think the other one is, is, is to Shirley's point earlier, is some people are just not potentially that interested in governance or even potentially not strategic in their thinking and they love being operational. Mm-hmm. So when they have a seat around the table, they struggle with that change. But also to your point, when a board is established for a private company as part of succession planning or potentially a trade sale or or new shareholders, that the training gap is there. And they actually have to be upskilled to understand what it means and why we're doing it, even if they're not that interested in it, 
we have to accept in life, in the role of a governor or director, that the things that you'll do that you know you have to do for legal reasons, but also for compliance, which is an element of that, also managing your strategic risks accordingly by doing that effectively. And last but not least, if you don't know something, ask a question. Mm. You cannot rely on your fellow director around the table. But it is challenging for a lot of owners who are used to doing them themselves. And they don't realize now they're a 300-person organization at 50 million 400 million valuation and it's a whole different kettle of fish and that's hard for them. And often what we find that helps for those individuals is whether or not they should be in the boardroom by being an owner doesn't mean you have to be a director, Mm. but also if you want to be a director, what's the right role for you as opposed to being chair, but being an an executive director or non executive independent director, if you actually don't work in the Mm. business anymore. So this, it can be complicated, but keep it as simple as possible to help them on their journey. Cause what you want to avoid is, but we see occasionally boardroom disputes and we get called in to mediate between the founder and the board because the founder can't let go and they just don't get on with the chair who's independent and that raises a lot of challenges in itself. So I think what we're recognising here is that because someone brings a certain set of skills to the role, you know, they have uh, skills of founding a business or running a business or doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be an effective director and having that ongoing director kind of training and development is actually important, isn't it? It is. So there's several ways to answer that question. I think if you're not interested in being director but you want to be there because of right, it'd be good for the hopefully independent chair or appointed independent chair to coach and work with that person to think carefully, do they really want to be there? And the risks they're taking on by being a director and being an inactive director or potentially not competent one, to be blunt. The second thing to note is that if you're taking on a board role and you're not an owner, but you are been approached to join a board, your due diligence is critical. It's very clear that from a personality dynamics perspective, is this an effective board from the chair through the other directors and, and the CEO and, and the business model and the solvency test, et cetera. But lastly, would you want to spend time with these people in a boardroom? You know, we often don't think about that. And often people get clouded by, wow, that's an exciting brand. And I'm, it's great to say that I'm a director of this company. It's a lot more work actually part-time as a director and often full-time in your day job and, you know, buyer beware. So obviously, you know, being passionate about the company is important. You don't want to be a director of a, a brand or a company that you're not interested in. But what other characteristics do, you know, the most effective directors have? The first one is self-awareness, knowing what they do well and they don't do well. So they're very honest in the interview process and also where they add value add where their gaps are and how best to fill those gaps appropriately uh, through training, mentoring, coaching. Lastly, never take on a board role where you actually know you're not the right skill set, but they want to appoint you for a diversity of thought reason and you're keeping a seat warm. You will fail miserably. You will not want to be involved in, in governance anymore. And a shame, a real shame, because you probably would be a great director, but it's just the wrong fit. Sherry Lee, from your experience, you know, in corporate governance and on a board, do you agree with that, that those are what mm. makes a really effective yeah. director? Yeah, I would say so. And, you know. Oh, thank God you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know how awkward this would be otherwise? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's, I guess I go back to my earlier statement about being this whole millennial and I cover three, three uh, quadrants of minority 
But at the same time, as a millennial, I just take the opportunity and I step up to it and I use my skills. I have some really obvious skill sets that I can bring to the board at the board level and I'm not quiet. <laughs> um, you have confidence, I have quiet confidence. confidence. That's it, yeah. I'm, I will have the confidence to say I don't agree with that and I think that's what being an effective board member is about. It's just actually owning your own thoughts. Backed up by skills, I wouldn't make a decision or, or say something if I hadn't done my own research, which is why when you get the board materials, are you looking through it? Are you aware of what we're going to be talking about at the meeting? Um, coming in blind is not helpful. It doesn't mean that you're making any informed decision. And at the time, if you don't have enough information and you're being put on the spot to make, then say that too. Say, I don't have enough information. An effective director will be honest about that. And quite frankly, often the person that says there's just not enough information is usually the right one because as you dig deeper, something else comes up and you've gone, aha, I knew there was something or there was a piece of information that I was missing. So you're right, it, it can't just be that diversity of thought. It has to be that level of critical thinking when you're at that level as well, depending on whatever your skills get you're bringing to it. It's that critical thinking Yes, strategy. But at the end of the day, you're being presented with something and it's just having the information before you to make these informed decisions and representing a whole bunch of other um, stakeholders and owners. No, you're right. I would add to that, often directors take on too many board roles and it's critical to think about the workload involved mm. in being a director of various companies and there's a limit to how many roles you can take on and think through it carefully. Mm. You know, I'm, I remember having lunch with, in quotes, experienced director about 10 years ago. And I said to him, I think you're on about 11 or 12 board roles. Oh, that's okay. Most of them are easy. I just skim the pack and I show up to the meeting and I'm okay. I'm thinking that's like the worst thing to tell someone because that's really the, the inappropriate way to be a director. You're not only ineffective, but you're putting the organization at risk and you're putting yourself at risk. So that type of bad behavior doesn't work. So I know you asked about how to be effective. It's important to recognize that it is bad behavior for it to stop and to think about as a, from a chair perspective, should that director still remain in the board as well? And that comes back to, you know, thinking about your board dynamics, yeah. evaluating the needs of the business and looking for the people that are going to best fit the needs of the business. So we're talking about businesses in tough economic times. Do you think that the needs of the board change when times are tough? If there's a downturn for the company or if we end up in a global pandemic, how do you think that that is affected? When the pandemic hit in March 2020, all my board meetings went online and we literally went to, in some cases, daily check-ins, mm. so being agile, that's a popular buzzword. But more importantly, we were in regular communication, in my case, chair to CEO and fellow directors. And we found that it worked well as a model by being adaptable and ensuring that if we had to change something quickly, we could as a board. So we weren't becoming a working board, so we weren't caught up in the operations at all. But we recognized that we had fast, short meetings regularly and often for between three to six months, depending on the organization. And it bode well for us in all the companies that I was involved in, thankfully, because our biggest concerns at the time in a few cases was manufacturing without having geographic spread. Second was supply chain slowdown. Mm -hmm. And third, we just didn't know what this would be and would we be in a depression or recession then depression. And as a result, you know, could we sustain what we have and do we have to look at, you know, various restructurings, et cetera. So 
Being adaptable in the use of technology in summary was a key benefit for us to be effective as a board in the new age. And as a result, we are returning to face-to-face board meetings. But for example, in the case today, one board member is unwell, so we immediately triggered our contingency of going to uh, an online video meeting the next day. So we we watch health very closely. I did notice wearing my other hat for Board Dynamics as a company that our demand doubled or immediate succession planning with some board members that they wanted to retire and replace with the right skill sets to get them through this period. They felt we need to revisit our board. So we were very busy uh, appointing new directors uh, with some directors recognized, oh, I can't deal with this. I better retire. In some cases, we're asked to retire politely. That's the term. So a lot of boards changed and added and replaced very quickly with the right skill set and experience to help them through this period of time. That was one key driver. So actually, if we prepare in advance and we have those, you know, effective dynamics in place, then when you get to the crisis, you don't have to suddenly change up your board. But if you haven't done that work in advance, then it's going to be a lot tougher to ride out the crisis. 100%. The best prepared boards in my experience are continually reviewing their board's performance. Outside of the annual board review, they're actually checking in as a board at the end of each meeting. And the chair is checking with their with the other directors and the CEO regularly around this and ensuring that they have the right skill set mix around the table to be resilient in times of any challenge. No one predicted a pandemic, probably outside of Bill Gates back in 2015, the famous TED Talk. But in reality, a lot of organizations revisited their strategic risk model as well as the board composition. And lastly, do we have the right business model to be resilient and successful? Hardest hit industries, as we all know, you know, from tourism, you know, through to the airline industry, none of those boards plan for this. So in some cases, they just stopped operating temporarily. In other cases, they just went to reserves. Some cases tried to raise capital. Others raised capital or borrowed money and so on to get through what we've witnessed for the past two years. We're hoping we're at the tail end of this, but we, as we recognize now with the geopolitical risk we're seeing in Europe, as well as inflation. Boards now have to deal with that new type of crisis, whether it's short-term, medium, or long-term, to be seen. So boards now are being more strategically focused around risk, which is something that a lot of them weren't doing well. It was very easy for a long time, especially if you're in the share market, it was easy. Now we're rethinking our own portfolios as well, and you think about that as a good analogy. So looking at boards from the ground up and looking at it's not just a board that's good when times are, are good, but how do we find a board that's good when times are tough? And if you get the right board, they can take you through both those times. And they've experienced it. So having diversity of age and experience will help for people who have been through 87, 88, stock market crash, yeah. dot-com 2000 bubble. Yeah. So having a mixture of people who've seen it and those who have yeah. not seen it, witnessed it, will be important. Mm. The well. younger people with the optimism of we'll make it through and the older people with the experience of getting you there. Correct. What would you say in terms of when the times are tough in your experience? It's really hard to then look at your board at, you know, when you're in it in the war zone and then go, oh, okay, how do we do this? Because as you know, appointments and changing the board isn't as easy as like, right, let's let's go through a recruitment process. How would you normally deal with that? So what we found in a few cases when there was a real crisis and we didn't have the skill set to support us, we brought them on as a technical advisor to the board. So in one case, we had a technical advisor on supply chain to work through some of our challenges. In another case, we had an expert on technology and innovation 
for how to sell a certain product offshore seamlessly. Another case around 3PL management, et cetera, around you know, warehousing inventory management outside of New Zealand because of the slowdown. They were seconded to the board over a six to nine month period as an advisor to the board, not as a director to be clear. Mm-hmm. Allowed us some time to then have in parallel a recruitment process yeah. to identify the right independent director to be there for the long term. So building the, the right board, but then also not being scared to acknowledge that a crisis has required skills that you don't have and being happy to bring those on temporarily or look for someone long-term to meet that need. 100%. So in a more recent case, we've brought on a very experienced lawyer helping us in a family dynamics challenge and issues also in the boardroom. And that's also, again, very important to know which experts to bring in. You have them as a board member. In some cases, you have them as an advisor, and it's the right balance, which mm. is also important. Too. It's mm. probably where we, you lead into that murky waters again of, well, hang on a second, are you acting with a, an advisor hat on or a board member hat? But I guess that comes down to what their obligations are and making it very clear what their roles are and when you bring somebody on. I think that leads me to that whole induction process, which is a little bit off topic, but having the induction process right is really important for onboarding anybody um, to your board, even an advisor, I would say. Would you agree? Completely right. And what we found the most useful technique is have a checklist Mm. of who they need to meet, what documents they should read, and have that maintained on a quarterly basis so it's never out of date. And the last thing to note, I think, around wearing different hats it's very important to be self-aware, as I mentioned earlier, and we can't help ourselves. And I think it's the role of the chair in providing that feedback very discreetly to the individual on how to, to adjust, but also if they continue with that behavior in the boardroom, the chair in the nicest of ways can have them say, that sounds great, that's a bit operational, let's move on to the next subject, and um, that's noted, thank you. All right, that's great, guys. Thank you very much for appearing and for uh, discussing how we build an effective board and senior management team. and. Obviously, if we can get those board dynamics right, then obviously we'll have a much more resilient board and one that's better able to deal with tough economic times, whether that's pandemics or wars in Ukraine or inflation or whatever might come. So thank you, Henri. Thank you, Shirley. And that's Off the Clock. 